And I, I also remember a distinct moment of like, you know, pulling my first etching and that being a kind of like, oh, this is what I've been trying to do all along. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English as well as Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been supporting printmakers with high-quality products since 1997. That's why they've partnered with some of today's most well-respected artists and friends of the pod, such as Steve Prince, Dalita Martin, Jamal Barber, and Angela Pilgrim, to create Speedball's professional artist network. And if you're looking to join the pros and want to be featured by Speedball, head on over to speedballart.com and find out how you can apply. My guest this week is Amzi Emmons. Amzi is an instructor at the Tyler School of Art and Architecture in Philadelphia. We talk about building community in the face of civic infrastructure failings, outdated commercial print technology repurposed for fine art, and how and why we build connections for printmakers in the digital sphere. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and Things are about to get a little printeresting with Amzie Emmons. Hi, Amzie. How's it going? Great. Great. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you on. You know, as we were talking about a little bit off record, off tape, some of your projects were definitely early inspirations for what I wanted to build and what I wanted to create um, when I started Pine Copper Lime, now Hello Print Friend. So it's really special for me to have you on the podcast and get to know you a little bit more in your work and your motivations and just have a nice chat. Awesome. I'm excited to be here. Happy to kind of be become part of uh, this tremendous archive of conversations around print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in the, the Hello Print Friend family now, officially. You were sort of like mm-hmm. a, uh, um, I don't know, like a, a, found, a what, would we, what would you maybe call it? Like a, I don't want to say a founding father, that's too many, <laughs> too much baggage, but a, uh, um, you know, an early seed. But now, yeah, you're definitely going to be in the family. So, so I always, as you know, because you said you've listened to some of the podcasts, I always invite my guests to introduce themselves on their own terms, which I describe as the questions of who you are, where you are, and what you do. Okay. Um, my name is Amzi Emmons, and um, I'm in uh, Philadelphia, uh, and I've been here, I don't know, about 15 or 16 years, and um I'm an artist and a teacher. Uh, I teach at the Tyler School of Art and Architecture in their printmaking and visual studies programs. Mm -hmm. And then, so to roll back the clock a little bit, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And what role did art play in that part of your life? Uh, I grew up in a very small town called Middleburg uh, in upstate New York, um, which is in a section of the state known as the Central Leather Stocking Region. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, And it's a little sliver of uh, farmland uh, kind of between the Catskills and the Adirondacks. And uh, it was um, in many ways a kind of idyllic small town um, with everything that's kind of good and bad about small towns. Mm. Um, And uh, art, um, I feel like art worked its way into my life through um, through obvious and less obvious kind of um, influences. Um, uh, you know, obviously there was not any museums or galleries or anything where I grew up. Um, but I um, do come from like uh, a long line of people invested in craft traditions. Uh, my mom and her side of the family are all kind of quilters and sewers. And um, I think a lot of uh, the attention to um, making things uh, with your hands um, with a sense of purpose and care um, mm. definitely comes from that side of the family. Um, and also uh, the 
that corner of upstate New York for years, um, artists have been sort of leaving the city and moving up there and, you know, buying farmhouses and, and setting up studios, you know, really since like the 30s and 40s. So there's multiple generations of artists and musicians sort of tucked away in the woods. And I was lucky enough to meet a number of them when I was very young, and they presented a really different um approach to life as opposed to, um, you know, being a, a small town business person or a farmer or um, someone um, who was doing that sort of thing. And it was very appealing to me as as a way of um, having just kind of an expressive and it's always seemed a bit more freeing. And so that sort of solidified um, an idea of what was possible, like and in, in as ridiculous as a, you know, you know, kind of children imagine what is possible mm. as they grow up. Um, I was like, oh, well, this seems like a good idea. I should really kind of think about being an artist. And I'd always really been someone who was kind of constantly drawing or making things. Um, and that was a big part of what we did growing up. I mean, there literally wasn't much else to do besides, you know, chores around the farm. Right, right. So you grew up on like a, a proper farm then with farm chores? I mean, is it well, animals I think, or what were you yeah, doing? Um, the, the local farmers who made their living off of their farms would contest that statement. But um, <laughs> my dad was a small town dentist and um, my mom was essentially the one who ran uh, the farm. We had, you know, about 10 acres, sheep and chickens and pigs mm. and a lot of vegetables. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then so you grew up drawing, you grew up with these influences of these these country artists, which that just sounds incredibly romantic to me. I've always kind of been drawn to that idea of getting to leave this focal center for art, you know, where there's the hustle and the drive and everything that goes along with it, you know, like New York, LA, DC, Philadelphia, Chicago, and just go and get to be out in the country. That's, I think, always been a, a not so secret kind of long-term dream of mine is just to get to make out in nature. And so I think that's really wonderful that you actually got to see that side of of art and and the artistic life because I think it is a big part of it and you know I just moved to Santa Fe and I think Santa Fe plays that in between role for some artists as well you know not quite yeah, the big city sure. but also you know um long tradition of artists coming out this way to to be able to reconnect mm -hmm. and so at that point did you know that you were going to go to art school you know as as a young kid I mean where did that the actual kind of process from you know, seeing what was possible, being keen on it, to actually it becoming this driving force in your life? I, I had sort of, I guess, two or three different experiences that kind of solidified things. Um, I had a tremendous uh, high school art teacher, mm. um, Janet Barone, and she was um, she was great uh, and really um, pushed pushed me um, and the, the other students who kind of had a expressed interest. I mean, um, considering the resources she had available, she was kind of tremendous to work with. And then um, I ingratiated myself to a, a landscape painter who moved into my town uh, named David Cocktree. And we worked out an arrangement uh, through most of um, a year or two in, in, I guess, high school where I would help him build a studio behind his house and he would take me out kind of um, painting, landscape painting um, around the Schoharie Valley where we lived. And he was very much a kind of latter-day Hudson River school painter. He sort of loved George Innes. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, at the time, I mostly, like any good teenager, I just sort of complained about it all, like, <laughs> you know, with our heavy wooden French folding easels, like hiking up the side of the mountain. Looking back, I mean, it, like you said earlier, it was a pretty romantic way to yeah. learn how to paint. Um, uh, and, um, n near where I lived, um, a few towns over in Oneonta, um, uh, two artists, Sandra Freckleton and Jack Beale had sort of moved up there from New York city and they had summer workshops, um, for artists of different kinds. Um, uh, and, uh, in a similar situation, I kind of, um, agreed to sort of help them with um, with chores to run the workshop and they would let me sit in on figure drawing classes and composition classes and watercolor class um, and I think those experiences kind of you know uh, you know I I went from kind of copying things from comic books to thinking about and looking at art and art history and you know when when we would make a trip into New York City I really looked forward to going to galleries and museums um, as opposed to you know, maybe a few years before, I just wanted to go to the, like the toy store or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then where did printmaking come into your story? Um, well, we did some in high school, um, but I pretty much hated all of it. You know, it was kind of <laughs> lino block 
stuff. Um, uh, In I went to Ohio Wesleyan for undergrad and had the good fortune of studying with Jim Crable, um, uh, who's a tremendous teacher. Uh, And I took a drawing class with him pretty early on, and it was um, you know kind of mind blowing. And so I signed up for his printmaking class. And in many ways, um, you know, it was one of the most difficult art experiences I'd had up to that point. I think um, uh, it it came very difficult to me. And and for whatever reason, that made me immediately sign up to take another class. Um, And I, I also remember a distinct moment of like, you know, pulling my first etching and um, that moment where you see your drawing um, transformed through the mechanical process of, of, of etching and, and the way the, the line quality sort of changes as it's kind of, you know, extruded and debossed and embossed onto the paper. Um, uh, and I just remember that being a kind of like, oh, this is what I've been trying to do all along. Yeah. Uh, And do you mean that that's sort of from the the formal landscape painting, um, you know, outside, you know, Hudson River Valley School kind of style. Is that is that sort of what you were going for? Or is this sort was this more of a, oh, I was doing this, but this is actually what excites me kind of a feeling? I think a lot of um, uh, a lot of my education in undergrad was sort of unlearning um, what mm. I thought artists art looked like, you know, because um, yeah. I was kind of a rube. I had very limited experience in terms of contemporary art. And I think a lot of what I thought um, art needed to look like was really defined by old paintings. Um, and I there there were people who were much better at painting than I was. I think um, in many ways, you know, drawing was really uh, where my talents lied. And and print um, the the kind of distancing mechanism of print allowed something to happen that um, was very exciting to me. Mm. Um, and um, actually telling the story, it reminds me, uh, you asked where printmaking uh, came into my life. The truth is um, that in high school, I, I had a job cleaning out an office um, to make a little extra money. And so every Sunday I would go in and I'd, I'd be in the office for like two hours cleaning it. But I would spend an hour and a half um playing on the photocopier. Ah, yeah. And, and then I would clean the office hurriedly with the, like the last 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> and so I think uh, something about like uh, the experience of just making a copy of something and the way it just kind of uh, the the imperfections that show up in a photocopy from an original source and the way it kind of reduces information. Um, I think I, that that's always been appealing as an aesthetic um, and and I guess intellectual shift that can happen with an image. And, um, and I found it again, um, in, in undergrad when I was studying print. Mm, Yeah. And then I feel like that's a really wonderful little introduction to my next question, which has to do with your current practice, which actually does explore short lived office printing technology. And do you think the seed for that was planted in this this office job and that kind of magic of the photocopier, because I I definitely remember having those experiences, you know, on the very, very late 80s, early 90s, take your daughter to work day days when I would go in with my father, uh, who was a librarian. And so, you know, lots of that kind of of that early tech about um, printing and photocopying was available in the library. And it does kind of seem like magic as a young person, you know, that you can just create something almost seemingly from nothing. And um, is that, yeah, you think kind of still playing itself out, that interest, um, even uh, today? Totally. I mean, totally. And I, th- one of the other big kind of um, circumstantial factors is that for most of my um, my career, I haven't really had a press of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at this point, I've got like, you know, a really nice etching press um, and, and a good setup for screen printing. So there's a lot of things I can do in my studio. But for a long time, I was either, you know, sort of sneaking into um, a teaching studio on Sunday mornings to print or uh, waiting till I could go be a visiting artist somewhere um, uh, to make things. Um, and so uh I decided at a certain point that this I would figure out a way for this to be a strength and not a weakness. Um, mm. And this led to a kind of deep, deeply nerdy um, research into um, just kind of different sorts of printing technologies, um, a lot of which, you know, uh, were short lived as they were replaced by more efficient and uh, equipment heavy ways of printing. Mm-hmm. So I got very interested in things like copying pencils and carbon paper and um, stencils and things that like lived in a kind of gray space between, um, you know, uh, drawing and printing. And they were not invented for 
sort of either of those things, particularly, you know, they were kind of made so that an office scribe could make copies of things um, or a machinist could could map out a, a tool or a die that needed to be cut out. Uh, so I, I really liked just researching the way uh, these tools were used in material culture and visual culture and in industry and thinking about ways I could sort of sneak them back into a creative practice and repurpose them. Yeah. So you mentioned copying pencils and carbon paper. Do you have any like late great favorites? You know, anything that just seems completely bizarre now? Um, but at one point had this, uh, this moment of glory in, uh, you know, early office life that, that you think people might not be aware of? Well, I think copying pencils is, is a pretty good one. Not a lot of people have spent much time looking into them. They were, um, uh, in the in the history of mark-making tools, pencils were invented much long after pens were in existence. And the trouble with a pen and ink is that it produces essentially one copy of something. Right. Um, and so there was a kind of moment between really commercially viable letterpress printing and having a kind of office full of scribes who are literally like copying things by hand. Um, and it's a, it's a pencil that just has a particular kind of dye in it that when it's pressed um, on a damp piece of paper will make a copy. So a lot of times they were used in ledgers um, or um, or in people working in the field because they could make a quick copy of their notes. So a lot of book presses um, were, were used in offices um, to make, you know, these sort of tissue paper copies of, of inventories and ledgers and things like that. And um, they they were widely used for a long period of time and then sort of disappeared um, when it became clear that the dye in the pencil was actually quite toxic. And um, oh. <laughs> and this generation of scribe who like kind of grew up like sort of licking their pens um, oh. or licking their copying pencil, you know, they were just in, in the tradition of industrial um, accidents. They were just kind of inadvertently poisoning themselves. Um, wow. And I think, um, you know, uh, carbon paper, mimeograph machines, I think all of these things have a kind of interesting um, signature to them um, uh, that tie them to a particular moment in the history of information, um, in the history of visual culture. And I sort of like pulling them out and doing something different with them. Um, yeah, I definitely understand that. And, you know, I haven't ever gone down the, the rabbit hole of short-lived office printing tech. But, and, and it's interesting because, uh, just thinking about it now, a lot of that for me was about lurking around in university libraries in the late 80s and early 90s and seeing, um, you know, seeing slides, seeing, um, you know, the, the overdue notices get printed out, um, you know, on like the, the, the printer with like the, the paper that had the, the holes down the side that you then had to pull off. And that totally. would be a carbon copy. And it just really seems like like there is a kind of appeal to that. Like there's something about the the analog nature of it um, and the ephemeral nature of it. You know, the fact that this had this really important job at one point to make whole systems go. And now it's almost like it never existed in the way that we interact with the world now. And there is something almost like a like cryptozoology or I don't know, like crypto printology about it uh, that really does have totally. a, a appeal that's hard to kind of put into words. But it, it, maybe for me, it's just something about the idea of, of, of just it disappearing doesn't seem right because it had this important job. I don't know. What do you think it is for you? Well, I, I mean, at some point I realized that that printmaking as a creative artistic medium is really in some ways defined by um, taking tools away from industry as sometimes as they've been deemed um, uh, irrelevant uh, right. or obsolete and figuring out something to do with them. And partly in my own experience, like when I was in undergrad and even part of the way through graduate school, um, in undergrad, we didn't have any screen printing, um, partly because when my professor was a student, screen printing was taught in the commercial art wing of, you know, the art school. Oh, really? um, it, it, it wasn't a fine art tradition. And, and when I got to Iowa, um, at the time, screen printing was taught in photography because of like uh, Lazansky's uh, tradition, uh, traditional department, like screen printing wasn't considered uh, printmaking. Um, so now it's like a huge part of my practice, but just thinking that it like um, that it was not considered a fine art for years um, because it was used commercially, I thought was interesting. And 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 watching the rise of letterpress, um, right? Just as just as all these job 
printers around the country were essentially getting rid of their equipment because office printers, uh, uh, digital office printers had made them completely obsolete. Um, I mean, that was the, if it hadn't become obsolete, there wouldn't be, uh, there wouldn't be the equipment for the creative revolution in letterpress that happened through the 90s and early 2000s. Right. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw a letterpress card for sale at a little downtown boutique and it completely enraptured me the the quality of the paper i mean this is long before i ever even really knew what printmaking was in the way i do now but just seeing the embossment of the letters um and and it obviously was something that was at one place every day but it's in its obsolescence it becomes scarce and in its scarcity it becomes appealing to collectors basically yeah and and artists that's so interesting i think when it one of the things that happens as a technology becomes a, a bit less dominant is that artists begin to notice what's strange about it mm. um uh in the same way that like warhol kind of dialed in on the halftone i think um you know a good letter a good a well-printed letterpress document doesn't have the kind of embossed letters. But now that's very much a hallmark of letterpress um, because it lets everyone know that it is printed by hand, right? So um, so I often feel like the, the kind of specific um, signature of a print medium uh, starts to get a lot more exploited once it stops being, um, I, I don't know if it's dominant, but once there's enough space for artists to begin kind of picking it apart and figuring out what's interesting about it. So that leads me so curious about like what's going to happen with like the inkjet printer or mm -hmm. uh the receipt printer um all of these things that are essentially functionally invisible forms of print in our world like how what are artists going to do with them that'll be kind of compelling or interesting mm, yeah well and i don't know if if this would be the case but would lithography fit into this as well i mean i'm thinking of course lithography maybe was always kind of straddling fine art and commercial you know in the sense that you had um artists like toulouse lautrec who would of course do advertisements but then also lithographs for the purpose in and of themselves i don't know where do you think litho fits into it well lithography was definitely um com like a hugely important commercial printing process in the 19th and good sections of the 20th century. Um, and it still is like, um, you know, offset presses are still used to print all right. kinds of things. I, I often, when I'm teaching uh, introductory classes in, in um, uh, screen printing and, and, and or lithography, I often ask students to go out and find examples in the world of this mm. printing process and to bring it back just so they start to think about what they're doing as being um, part of a process and part of a, a, um, a history that is both in popular culture and in fine art, and that, that they can leverage that if it's relevant to what they're trying to do with their work. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about that I, I pulled from your website, which is um, really wonderful, and I, I highly encourage anyone listening to go check it out because it's, it's you know, no shade to other artists' websites, but I think you have a much more uh, a depth of writing on there and um, and documentation that is is really... Above average. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so it's really worth um, looking at, and it's really fascinating to see, you know, you writing about your thoughts. And one of the things you said when you're talking about, um, you know, the way these technologies interface with your practice is, I'm interested in how these experiments enhance the interplay between the gestural nature of drawing and the graphic artifactual language of print, which I just thought was really, really beautiful, but I wasn't entirely sure what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> too. So, Fair. yeah, I and and I so I was like, well, when I get him on the mic, I'm going to ask him because oh. it's 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 poetic and I sounds like there's a real gem in there, but I'm not entirely sure what you meant. <laughs> well, I mean, in some in some ways in terms of uh process, let's say, this is the central question that I've been trying to um play with in my work for as long as I can remember. Mm. Um um my my two great interest as someone who makes things are in kind of drawing and printmaking. And um, I, I think in, in leading to that statement, I was trying to figure out in some ways, like, what is the essential for me? What are the essential qualities or quality of, of each of these two mediums in a kind of like, what is the first Lego brick um, in building with either of them kind of way? Mm. Um, and I feel like, uh, at least in my practice, drawing practice, and I 
I don't pretend to put this out as a universal truth. It is about capturing the gestures of my body. You know, mm. it is a, a tool that is an extension of my arm. And um, in in the way that, yeah, any, any, any way I, uh, like, it makes me think about dance, I guess, in some ways, like, as you move your, your arm and your hand, um, you capture those gestures um, in, in a very kind of fluid and uh, embodied way. Um, mm. Now, um, so in some ways, I think, uh, that is that is particular to drawing, and it overlaps with many other mediums, obviously painting. But then you start to get into color and plasticity and things. But I think dr- drawing marks are gestural and they're precarious because they can be erased at any moment. Nice. Um, whereas um, print is inherently, in some ways, it's it's always a bit graphic. Um, there are exceptions to this, um, uh, and there are art- artists who absolutely use the the kind of ability of print to mimic anything to totally capture those gestures, but um, we're often you're often having to reduce um, uh, the kind of drawn mark to make a print, um, lowering the resolution, uh, limiting the kind of litho crayon you use, um, stopping out, you know, this this kind of thing. And so I feel like um, uh, print uh, necessarily produces things that are slightly more graphic and um and in visual culture and popular culture, um, uh, it's even more so, I think. Um, and so I'm interested in the way that those two things are different and trying to find a space between them. Um, I think uh, in, in our culture, like we print things that are important. Um, that's what documents are. Uh, they're almost always necessarily printed. Um, and then we have to sign them w- to, with an autographic gesture to prove that they're real. Um, I just think that's really interesting that as a culture, yeah, in some fundamental way, we value uh, drawing as a way to capture our identity and print as a way to authenticate institutional voices and authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you were saying there about the uh, dichotomy between that gestural nature, and I understand how you mean about like the graphic language of print is really interesting and, and I think really beautiful. And, you know, the way drawing has this incredible immediacy and looseness to it. And of course, this is, again, as you say, generalizing, there are always artists who will be the exception to the rule. But generally, when you think of of drawing, that's what we think of. And, and almost, um, you know, as you say, it could be erased at any time, maybe it's preliminary. And and that particularly when you start out, it, it's the the um, the kind of physical looseness, even you know the way you hold the pencil, the way it moves across the page. Um, whereas, yeah, printmaking has that strength, the 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 um, the hard edges, and I could yeah, I could definitely see particularly when you're working in something that is in the in-between space like these commercial printing technologies for a fine art purpose, you also get to play with the in-between space in that way as well, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I'd I'd really like to um, make sure we get a chance to talk about as well the content of your work, because we've talked a lot about the process and how you got there. But you actually have recurring themes as well in what you're doing with all these different technologies. And you see a lot of kind of urban scenes, ATMs, trash bins, traffic cones, folding chairs. How does that, or I guess maybe I should just ask, you know, why is this? And how does it relate to the process? Yeah. Why, why though? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, good question. Um, I think I'm, uh, I mean, in the most broad sense, m- most artists in some way, like their work starts from a kind of personal place, right? And then it begins to connect to, to questions that plug into society or the history of art or, you know, whatever their jam is. Um, and I think um, for me, it's it's often um, come from this question of like, um, like, where do communities happen? Like, how do they happen? Uh, where do they thrive? Um, um, where can a person find home? Um, what does it mean to kind of feel uh, like you don't have, like you are not yet home? Um, uh, and so that leads me, um, it, over time, that led me to, to think about walking as a way to kind of move through place and and really observe what, what was happening around me. Um, and I became interested in um, architecture and in, in, um, designed and man-made objects um, and thinking about them as, as metaphors for um, uh, the way there are tremendous uh, systems at place that make it difficult for communities to happen um, and also as evidence for collapsing systems. Um, 
and and all of it kind of revolves loosely around the question of like how did things come to be this way what do they tell us about the moment that we're in um a lot of people often comment that my work is both um that it appears to be both kind of uh dark but also humorous um and that's probably accurate um uh like i i i'm sort of interested in the way these symbols um can be put into play um in images that that create kind of open open-ended narratives um that present questions to people um uh so uh, the way the the work happens is i might walk around like i live in philadelphia i've been here for a long time and part of my kind of project since arriving here was sort of figuring out where i was um and it's a tremendous city lots of different types of people from all over the world um uh it's a post-industrial city. It used to be a, a hub for all kinds of industry. Um, and it's at this point a, a very poor working class city um, where a lot of the infrastructure and the institutions that were built up in that industrial 19th century are really kind of falling apart. And people are in many ways just trying to do their best. Um, and I'm sort of um, drawn to moments where uh, it seems like the the systems are collapsing and also mm-hmm. moments where it seems like people are um, making do. Um, in, in some ways, I think this goes back to where I, I'm from. Like, uh, you know, the county I grew up in outside of New York City was one of the poorest counties in upstate New York. And uh, and there was a lot of people making do and a lot of neighbors looking out for neighbors um, and not a lot of supporting infrastructure. Um, and also, my family was not from there. Uh, they moved there, you know, they're sort of back to land hippies. Um, and so I always had this sense that it was, um, you know, to be um, from a place, but not of a place. Uh, and so I've, I've always been interested in that idea of like, what does it mean to be local? What does it mean? What do you see if you're not local? Um, and um, so in, in Philadelphia, like, um, I, you know, I, I started tracking things that seemed like uh, I just began to notice them over time. And they seem like they might be symbols that I could try to decipher to mean something. And that it might be a traffic cone or a sinkhole or the kind of weird sculpture someone builds to protect their parking space mm-hmm. um, or the way, you know, a group of neighbors might set up a folding table to play cards or dominoes outside their houses. Um, uh, all of these things um, kind of get put in the soup. And um, the actual way I make the images um, I, I try not to make things that are didactic. I'm not interested in sort of telling mm-hmm. people like, like in some ways, who am I to tell anybody anything? Um, so I mostly just try to present um, this information in the form of um, of a kind of aesthetic question um, that they can they can build a narrative out of it. Uh, they can find pleasure in it. They can find it troubling. Like that's kind of I can only provide half the question, um, half the conversation. Yeah, it's hard for me not to think of Thailand, where I just was living, when I hear you speak about this, because that is a place that has an extremely deep sense of community and also a place where a lot of systems go wrong <laughs> it's um it's the kind of place where uh you know it's really not uncommon to be walking down the street and to see just like a transformer on fire just in the middle of the street like the the electricity in bangkok is is not um is not that great you know you get you get blackouts you get things on fire um i think anyone who's traveled in a lot of places in Southeast Asia, but, you know, the cities of Thailand, maybe particularly, you see these incredible bird's nests of wires on electric poles that are just gigantic, Mm -hmm. you know, that people have just been adding and adding and adding without any real structure of what needs to come down. And the ways the community comes together to keep each other safe is really beautiful and interesting. And you know, if a transformer is on fire, you will see some people who have stopped in their day just to tell people not to walk underneath it, for instance. And um, and it's almost just sort of like this is just part of how we all live in Bangkok together, you know, as we're all in a city that has weird electricity and flooding streets and it's really hot and we have blackouts but we're all in it together. And I think in a way that underscores that sense of community and and that I felt very much a part of it, yeah. even, even I mean, as I, a stranger in a strange land. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have briefly spent a little bit of time in Bangkok and Thailand. And it's um, similar. Uh, I think you described it perfectly, this tension between, um, you know, the institutions and the infrastructure just not really working. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I think um, uh, it, it does places where 
I haven't lived in too many places where that um, where there is a kind of like wholly functional infrastructure. Um, but I think it, it often allows people, um, you know, I think about a lot of suburbs where people can just stay in their home. They don't mm-hmm. need to go outside. Um, they don't need to talk to their neighbors. Um, uh, and um, some of the other cities I've lived in where things are, um, I mean, uh, in some ways, what I think about often is that the infrastructure and the institutions were at, at least in a you know one of the oldest uh, cities in America were built in times of you know very serious systemic oppression and mm-hmm. and um, and there are parts of town that just don't have good infrastructure because that was you know where the immigrants lived a hundred years ago and they they're still trying to like replace the pipes you know um and so i often think that the kind of portable or mobile or temporary things that people build on top of that has so much more hope for me um i mean ultimately i feel like i the work i'm trying to make is hopeful um uh but it's but it's built around the the these kind of spontaneous communities that happen when uh you know a water main breaks and everybody has to come out and work together mm-hmm. um yeah that's i it's really 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 interesting and i I, I keep thinking about it too in this comparison and it, where, so I lived in Thailand for a year and experienced that, experienced the streets flooding. And then after the rain stops, everyone is out helping to unclog the drains together because no one else is going to do it. And then when you're out and you're talking to your neighbors and you're seeing each other and you're, you're letting the neighbors pet your dogs because your dogs have come out with you and you get these moments for real connection. And then maybe sort of the other extreme of it that I can think of is that my family is Norwegian. We have relatives in Norway we visited and Norway is extremely wealthy, extremely heavily structured, and also kind of famously, and I say this as a Norwegian, kind of cold. You know, the the joke about the Norwegian will give you directions anywhere but her house, you know, (laughs) is is sort of what they say. And, and, you know, um, and by cold, you know, I just mean sort of like formal. And I've heard people who've moved there, you know, say it's difficult to make friends in a way that I never experienced in Bangkok because we had these opportunities to meet our neighbors, to be of service together with our neighbors um, in order to make life go. And I'm sure that there are, you know, thousands and thousands of word sociological PhDs that could be written on these very broad strokes that I'm (laughs) painting with. But it is something I've never thought of before, but now that you you say it, it does seem like a theme, at least in the countries and the worlds and the cultures that I've experienced in my life. Yeah, that's so interesting, and it is hopeful. It's really yeah. It's it's and I I always felt really hopeful, um, and it reminds me a little bit of it, there's a wonderful podcast called The Happiness Lab, which is about the science of happiness. Mm-hmm. How do you get mm-hmm. happier? It's 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 great printing listening for anyone out there. Um, and one of the things that they keep coming back to, they talk about many different things, but the host, Lori Santos, says, you know, it's it's meditation, it's exercise, and it's one of the th- other main things that always works is having small, pleasant interactions with strangers. And that it it, it tells your brain, if you're wanting to fight depression, if you're going to want to fi- find happiness, it tells your brain that the world is a safe place that the world is okay, and that most people are generally good. And in some ways, when civic structure fails, it really does provide opportunities to have those interactions, which it sounds like you explore in your work, which is, yeah, super interesting. That's, um, yeah, well said. I think, um, I mean, in some ways, I, as a young person, couldn't wait to get away from the small town. Um, but then all I've done since I've lived in a major metropolitan area is like try, and, try to find my way back into it, mm. or try to find it where it lives in the city. Yeah, yeah. I want to make sure that with the time we have left, we have a chance to talk about Printeresting, um, which was a, a project um, I, I have in my notes here, actually. For those of you, dear listeners, who may not remember a pre-Instagram art world, <laughs> maybe um, MZ can explain what we did or what we tried to do. Um, I know, this is... This um, this happens sometimes where I'll I'll be a visitor somewhere and the professor will be like oh and he's you know he was part of uh, printeresting and the students will <laughs> look <laughs> like we're talking about eight track tapes or something yeah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but in a in a 
you know, previous version of the internet uh, before all available spaces were taken up by um, social media conglomerates, uh, it was a bit more of an open field and anybody could set up a website and kind of do anything. Um, and maybe people would pay attention and maybe they wouldn't. Um, uh, and that was kind of the setting for the the first boom of the, you know, blogosphere or whatever. Um, and um, at the time I was teaching at Muhlenberg College and feeling... Um, fairly isolated from the art world, from the print world. And um, I found myself trading a lot of uh, email correspondence with two of my old classmates from graduate school, R.L. Tillman and Jason Urban. And um, we decided to make a blog basically so it'd be easier for us to share with our students the things we were noticing. Mm. Um, You know, fast forward um, it became uh, a kind of seven-year project that, you know, at, at different points had you know, up to 10 other contributors. Um, and uh, uh, I think at our peak, uh, we were getting about, um, the site was giving about 70,000 hits uh, a month, um, which for a printmaking blog is a lot of readers. I think um, that's every single English speaking <laughs> printmaker. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it got translated into a couple different languages on a fairly regular basis. And we eventually got a, a Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant in 2011 for the work that we were oh, doing. Wonderful. Um, and I guess to, I'm sure all the contributors w- w- would describe their motivations in different ways. But I sort of felt like um, at that moment in time, uh, sort of early 2000s, um, uh, within the broader kind of capital A W art world, um, uh, installation and performance were getting some attention. Um, painting, uh, you know, was, is what it is now. It was like claimed a lot of space and mm-hmm. photography was really ascendant, uh, mostly through a strategy of making really big photographs that looked a lot like, you know, beautiful color paintings. Um, and, um, and we were sort of asking like, well, where does printmaking fit into this? And, uh, the answer that, that I came up with that I think, um, is, evident in, you know, what's left of the blog was that um, uh, printmaking had assumed a kind of a surgent, insurgent role within the art world, that it was present in performance as the takeaway ephemera, that mm. um, that within visual culture, you know, graphic design, interactive design was totally obsessed with le- letterpress and hand-printed um, skeuomorphic artifacts, um, and that a lot of the really interesting work being done in print uh, was not being done, was not what we were seeing in, in galleries and museums, which was largely um, people who made paintings and sculptures working in professional print shops to produce additions for the marketplace, but what was being done by artists all over, all over the country um, and all over the world. And they were working in print in a kind of expanded field, in installation, in performance, in video, um, in just, you know, a million novel ways. Um, and and we were just trying to track it, to keep track of it, to um, create a space for that. Um, mm. and, uh, and pretty quickly, we were asked to curate shows, to guest edit publications. I mean, uh, we were qualified to do none of this. I can't emphasize <laughs> this enough. Um, I mean, I, at, before I started this project, I would not have called myself a very good writer. And I'm sure R.L. Tillman and Jason Urban would probably tell you still that I'm not a very good writer because <laughs> they were constantly editing the things I was putting out there. But, um, but I think it was just um, a place for a community to gather and celebrate each other's work, um, mm. to look at a, a, you know, broad, diverse way of approaching print. And, um, you know, it was a kind of celebration and call to arms and, um, and formed a sort of, uh, document that a lot of young artists and um, professors were using to kind of think about the discipline. Um, yeah, yeah. And and I think, as I mentioned at the, the top of the show, it was truly an inspiration for when I started the podcast. And for all those reasons that, that you were just saying about, a, you know, a document or an archive for what's happening, um, a place for people to gather, a way for people to celebrate the work that they're doing and other people are doing. Um, and so, yeah, it's it was really wonderful. And I also understand, you know, why something on that large of a scale wouldn't be sustainable forever and ever and ever either, particularly as someone who does a, a, a lot of work to do this every week, to be honest, you know? Yeah, it, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. It was a labor of love. I mean, um, uh, it was all volunteer, um, and um, we 
did start to run ads at a certain point, but we immediately took the money we were making from our ads once we paid the, the hosting fees and we yeah. started giving away micro grants to mostly to students or recent graduates to do small projects. Um, uh, there was a moment, I think, in the, the kind of late mid 2000s where we either had to figure out a way to monetize the project and follow something like hyperallergic or we had to start winding it down because yeah. it was just uh, such a tremendous amount of work on top of, you know, all of us had full time jobs and um, and the web was changing. People weren't really reading in the same way. Um, uh, the, the kind of big social media um, conglomerates were beginning to take up more and more space. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it would be, you know, if you were doing it today, you know, I think very much like I do with the podcast, you couldn't just have printer resting. You would have to have the printer resting Instagram and the printer, you know, because yeah. like, the only yeah. way to get people to pay attention to what you're doing is through social media now, really. And that is a whole horse of a different color, different skill set, different like energy that you need to put into something to vie for attention that as you said, in the, the time of the blogosphere, um, when blogospheres ruled the earth, that uh, <laughs> it just wasn't it wasn't necessary. And um, I do. Yeah, I do. As as a as an early Internet baby, you know, kind of long for those days a little bit. I, I remember when things there was um, writing and thinking about the Internet in that form with email, with blogs, people were talking about it as a renaissance of the written word. They were saying, you know, people are going to be writing letters to each other like they used to do. You know, this is how we talked about email. Um, yeah, you, you golden age. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to call anyone anymore. You're going to, you know, say, you know, um, my dearest Timothy, my heart longs for you, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, yeah, exactly like a little, a, a little window. And of course, I think it's evolving again. I, I feel in the atmosphere, people getting burnt out on Instagram. And certainly, mm -hmm. you know, everyone I know is completely over Facebook now, at least in the States. Yeah. Um, I think it's still, I think outside of the United States, I think it, it, it holds more weight still for, you know, many, many reasons. But um, it, uh, yeah, it's uh, something's changing. And it's, it's, you know, really moving towards these video driven formats like TikTok, which of mm -hmm. course, is really not sustainable to most forms of art making, you know, the way Instagram was, which was sort of primarily, at least initially, still images with text. Yeah, it's difficult. There's only so many like print reveal TikToks one can make, you know, set to like some down tempo remix before like, that's it, you know. So it's, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what the internet looks like in 10 years. And the way artists and uh art enthusiasts and art collectors and uh, art professors interact with it. But I don't know, maybe we'll circle back a little bit. Maybe there'll be space again for long form thoughts about art and art making once, you know, Instagram's algorithm is so Baroque and complex and evil that no one can decipher it and we all just give up. My suspicion is that we will, that everything will, it's like a branching tree. You know, I think um, the one thing that's clear is that people are sort of burned out on, on big systems that are you know, harvesting their data and, mm -hmm. and minting their attention. Um, and I think s smaller kind of um, like discord is exploding where people set up right. small communities with like a focused topic. Um, I think, uh, like you said, video um, and, and sort of short bursts of creative energy um, that exist in a stream of, um, you know, the, the endless scroll, I think, are going. And yeah, there's, there's real questions like if, um, like how, like if, if we're all tired of like making money from Mark Zuckerberg, like, is there a living to be made with our, you know, with the way we can capture other people's attention online, or at least how do we protect our intellectual property? Um, how does, um, you know, if, if so much of our consciousness is projected into this dematerialized space, like, what do we want to do there? Mm, yeah, what, and I think that's, that's really astute and, and rings very true for me. And then I think another one that you, you mentioned Discord, but also thinking about Substack. And, yeah, and I yeah, think totally. that is is really becoming a place where thought leaders are realizing that they can monetize and protect what they make, as well as, um, you know, kind of curate their audience, as you said, in this branching way. Um, you know, there's going to be very specific people who are going to be willing to pay for your thoughts 
on something. But there are people who are making a living on it already. Yeah. Yeah. I think with the visual art, it's like things, models like Patreon are going to get looked at in interesting ways. Like, and, and, uh, you know, in the, the nature of the art world, I think has shifted to some extent. I don't, I don't imagine there are very many art students who dream of their work being purchased by a Russian oligarch and put in cold storage, (laughs) right? Like we, we do this stuff because we want to connect with people. And I think, uh, thinking about ways of, um, like the way fan culture or, or, sort of smaller, you know, more modest um, forms of collecting can happen. Mm. Uh, in some ways, like looking back to, to zine culture and, um, I don't know, different kinds of fan cultures as ways of imagining, um, I don't know, connecting with audience, uh, sustaining a practice, if not like making piles of money, then enough to keep doing what you're doing and, and enough uh, community and connection to find it rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like you're talking about micro grants earlier, but it's like... Um micro patrons, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That people, and this is quite hopefully, I hope this comes true, that we can be in a place where people just can directly fund what they want to see in the world. And it doesn't have to go through the pockets of inc- like in- inconceivably wealthy men, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just truly, yeah, inconceivable, like that amount of wealth. Um, and and then the the things that artists want to make and put in the world can be supported by the people who want to see them in the world. And that that sounds like a pretty good future to me. Yeah. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of people finding things in the world and supporting them and following them, where can people do that for you? Um, that's a good question. My uh, Instagram feed is Amzyland, my first name plus L-A-N-D. Um, my website is just my name. Um, and um, occasionally I take the reins of the uh, Tyler printmaking Instagram feed. So um, one of those three places are pretty good. Excellent. Well, I can put links to those three places in the show notes here. And then, yeah, I guess before we go, is there anything particularly on the horizon that you want to encourage people to look out for. I know we're we're recording this on December 20th, 2021, on the precipice of a new variant changing the world. So <laughs> I know I want to contextualize historically uh, this question, but I always like to ask people just in case there's anything they want to point to um, that people can look for? Well, um, uh, my I've had sort of two pandemic projects. Uh, one is I've been uh, making a couple prints at Flying Horse Editions, which is part of the University of Central Florida. It's their kind of, um, uh, you know, professional print shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a ton of fun, partly in correspondence and partly when the pandemic allows, I sort of have flown down there and worked with them. And uh, that was, I yeah, that was, we just had a ton of fun kind of, being super print nerds and um uh, and i always like working with other artists because it sort of pushes me in in interesting directions and um and then i i made a a bunch of other work in collaboration um there was two uh printers in philly who had a small shop called channel editions and i worked with them to do a bunch of stuff over the pandemic um partly like they're they're all former students of mine and business dried up when the city went into lockdown Mm. and um, and I knew I needed collaborators, otherwise I would stop doing anything creative. Um, and so uh, I worked with them to, to sort of start some projects that I've been finishing. So hopefully those things will start to move out into the world. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we will keep an eye out for those. So, yeah, thank you so much for this chat. It's been really fun. Um, and I just very much appreciate what you do and what you've done and your thoughts and, you know, your hope for the, the digital future of our of our community it's it's really beautiful i share it with you thank you it's been a real pleasure thanks so much if you like today's episode we have a patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like shop talk shorts with our editor timothy pauschak who digs deep on materials process and techniques with our guests and that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be tanya torgerson We'll talk about how an unexpected health crisis when she was 19 put her on the path to examine her relationship with death, and how she continues to do this through her beautiful, large-scale, ephemeral screen prints. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. 
I'll see you next week. <laughs>